Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Brett Menard. And my name is Jay Swords. This is the podcast segment of the show that's not broadcast on Station KALA. Our guest for this 415th show is Dr. Andrew Sorensen, postdoctoral researcher in human origins and material culture studies at Leiden University in the Netherlands. We're going to be talking about the ancient history of fire. Our history buff for today's show is Rick Sweet. Rick, start us off. Okay, thank you, Jay. Andy, uh, in the in the broadcast version, you mentioned that uh, there were four stages in the evolution of fire use. How controversial are uh, is uh, your assertion of these uh, four stages? I mean, these these four stages, which again, as a reminder, are so you start with the habituation to natural fire, so understanding it, under, figuring out how it how it acts in the landscape, and sort of eventually you get to figure out how useful it could potentially be. So then the second stage is using fire. So actively using fires to, um, to your, for your own means, to cook food um, and, um, or to start fires in the landscape to make things more attractive to prey species, etc. And eventually people got up the courage to uh, pick up and uh, transport fire with them to more favorable locations, maybe more protected areas like caves or under a tree. Um, and this, this maintenance and transport was sort of the, the um, I think, the gold standard for a very long time until eventually somebody figured out how to actually make fire themselves. That's the stage four, and uh, producing it artificially for whenever you need it. And, that, and so the, the stages are relatively uncontroversial. It's more the timing of when these various stages sort of um, became enacted by people um, through the course of prehistory. That, that's what's very difficult to pin down. Sure. Brett. Well, and let's talk about that transportation uh, phase. So how does one transport fire? Are we talking about carrying burning sticks or embers? Or how, how big is the fire I'm trying to transport from one area to, to another? Sure. I mean, so... Imagine you know yourself as a, say, a Homo erectus or something walking around the savannah of Africa. You know, lightning strikes are very prominent there, and so and these will often trigger these wildfires. And these are going to create smoke plumes that can be perhaps visible from ten, for tens of kilometers away. And if fire is something that you actually have become accustomed to using and you enjoy, you want to have that resource available. You can 10 kilometers or so is not a huge trek for a hunter-gatherer. It's a pretty standard foraging distance uh, on any given day. So to go collect that fire um, is 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 would be to yeah indeed just picking up uh, um, a, a firebrand like a, a stick that's either smoldering or on fire. I mean as long as you can keep those coals going and smoldering, you can pretty much carry that for a very long uh, distance. And then once you get to a place of, of your liking, then you just gather your tinder and your, your sticks, and then all it takes is a, you know, some puffs of air, and uh, you're going to have your own fire going right where you want it. And um, this, this practice is, is known even into the modern era from ethnographic um, observations by anthropologists and ethnographers around the world and during the, the period of exploration. I mean, modern hunter-gatherers 
so, you know, fire, making fire can sometimes be a pain in the butt. Um, and so if you have this option of carrying it with you, you do that. And, um, and so it, it's not that difficult uh, to do um, if you know what you're doing. Andy, along the same lines, um, in a uh, previous show, recent show that we had, we had an archaeologist from New York uh, who was whose specialty was experimental archaeology. So, trying to see if you can replicate um, under your own, yeah, under your own. Um, you know, something that was going on. Have you played around with that at all? And and I also will mention um, that the guy's name was Dr. Stull, and he thought that Leiden University in the Netherlands was nirvana. He raved on and on. Apparently, he had been there. Um, you obviously are, are apparently working in the world's most beautiful, amazing archaeologically friendly university on the planet. I didn't know if you knew that, so I thought I should share that with you. Because <laughs> he just yeah, raved. Yeah, especially we, we moved to a larger building in 2013, and so we got to sort of create these new labs that are spacious and with lots of nice microscopes. And indeed, the, the material culture studies, the artifact studies lab is pretty well equipped um, overall, and the, the microware analysis, uh, people doing microware analysis and residue analysis on tools, it is a, it is one of the, the certainly the better um, outfits in the world for this. So indeed, this does comprise a, a good chunk of what I do for my research because, again, you you can't you need to have some basis for which to interpret the traces that you see on archaeological tools, and. So doing all of these experiments with different types of materials and different types of activities, you create these reference libraries of, of traces that you can consult and compare with what you see on the archaeological tools as a way to interpret what you're seeing. And so with fire making, it leaves very distinct uh, traces on stone tools. So there's this sort of a bright mineral polish and these uh, usually heavy striations, so these, these series of scratches um, uh, on the on the tool that are, are quite distinctive to pyrite um, compared to even other types of stone that a, 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 a flint tool may have been used to work for a, a different purpose. So um, it, it I'm pretty confident in my interpretations of the Neanderthal tools that I examined and identified these uh, probable fire making traces on. And so it's a uh, yeah, it's a, it's a great place to work <laughs> for this regard because we, we do have a lot of the toys necessary for this, this, type, this type of analysis. Okay, Rick. Andy, I have uh, just follow up on that. Have you gone into the lab or a cave and uh, uh, tried to start a fire with, uh, uh, like we did in Boy Scouts, rubbing sticks together or uh, hitting... Uh, uh, flint pyrite. with yeah. yeah. Have you actually attempted to replicate what you think uh, was the process to create fire? Oh yes, um, very often actually. I Is mean, it easy? Fire making. Um, if, if you know what you're doing, it can be. Um, I would say percussive fire making is actually a lot easier than friction fire making because friction fire making requires the uh, you know good materials and uh, a lot of sustained effort 
to get that, uh, like if you're saying like a fire drill, so where you're rubbing, you know, the, the, the spindle between your hands and drilling into a hearth board to create that heated wood powder that eventually becomes an ember, you need a, a sustained effort and a good technique to get that to work. It's really not that easy. Um, and uh, with friction, with Picasso fire making, you just bang together these two rocks. Of course, there's some, you know, there's some technique involved in, into making it work uh, well to direct the sparks that you're producing onto a nice, suitable tinder material to capture those sparks and then start glowing so that you can blow it into a flame. But I mean, the the, the general gesture of, of hitting a piece of pyrite against flint or vice versa is pretty comparable to what humans have been doing for, uh, you know, at least two and a half to three million years when they're making their stone tools during flint mapping. You're striking a hammer stone against some flint to create a sharp edge to, to for your various tasks. And if somebody were to have picked up a piece like a pyrite nodule, which are usually pretty heavy for their size, they're nice and rounded, these things would make fantastic hammer stones. And it's, it's entirely likely that the person who sort of discovered fire the first time did so accidentally by using a piece of pyrite as a hammer stone against a piece of flint, accidentally producing some sparks that landed between their legs, and then they're going to very quickly draw that cognitive line between sparks and fire, and then perhaps replicate it and then try to gear that towards fire making. And so, yeah, so this, this, this task um, is indeed something I've done a lot of. I, I, I teach students how to do it in practical courses, and some of them are able to do it very quickly, and some of them take, you know, half an hour or 45 minutes before they finally get a spark capture that they can blow into flames. So there is definitely technique, but I would say percuss- if you have the right materials, percussive fire making is way easier than friction. So I get to ask the, the really fun question. Um, oh, how did your parents react when you told them that you were going to play with fire for a living? Uh, and especially well, of all of the doctoral interests you could pursue, I'm going to play with fire and, and, and to the extent that I'm going to get a PhD in it. I can I can guarantee you they were not surprised at all. I mean, my the run, my running my my running joke in this regard is that I used to start fires and dig holes as a kid for free, and now the suckers pay me to do it. So it, it is it is indeed a uh, a luxury position that I am in to be able to do this because I was definitely a fire bug to. Uh, an unhealthy degree at some moments in my early life. So it's nice that I'm able to channel it into uh, a much more constructive um, situation that, uh, that, it, that benefits everybody. <laughs> but, but, truth, but truth be, truth be told, I still make fire in my office in the faculty. Luckily there's no smoke detectors in that particular. Room. <laughs> well, I'm, ju- I'm just thinking that, you know, you would be the the absolute hit at any elementary uh, job fair. Go up to the little kids. What do you do for work? I I play with fire. Right. I make fire out of rocks. 
it's also good at parties with adults. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Or an an icebreaker at conferences, you know? It's like if somebody needs a cigarette light, they don't have a light. Well, I usually have in my backpack different ways of making fire. So it's like, oh, you want me to light your cigarette with flint and steel? Here you go. Chuck, chuck, chuck. That's great. uh, It's a good way to make friends. Don't worry and, about that um, burned hole in the carpet. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, so, I, I mean, that's the, that's one really great thing about my research is, I mean, everybody has an affinity for fire, whether it's the a fireplace in your house, campfires when you're out scouting, uh, candles in a romantic evening. I mean, everybody, or just barbecuing with friends. I mean, everybody has these sort of positive um, sort of communal associations with fire, and that's, that's I think that's, really good way to exemplify how this is a deeply rooted uh, technology in, in, in our technological repertoire. And that we, we've, there's even a study um, done that showed that people exposed to um, videos of fire with the crackling sound on a, just on a TV that showed that it lowered blood, their blood pressure and actually made them more um, able to be open to socialization. Um, so I think this is a really deeply ingrained technology that um, the, the, it is habitual for us. We can't really live without it anymore. Andy, I'm going to get the honor of, of having the last question, and uh, I'm actually okay. going to make it a twofer um, because I have one question that's more purely academic, and then I have one question that, that goes more to fire usage by uh, ancient populations. So the academic question is just simply, again, we had um, a, an experimental archaeologist on a, uh, a recent show, and in, he talked about how experimental archaeology is a relatively new branch, um, but that it's definitely becoming a very popular sort of area for people to go into, and a lot of good research is coming out, uh, lots of stuff's mm-hmm. being written, and so forth and so on. Um, Definitely. So uh, my question, you know, my question of his was, does he see that continuing in the future, or do you think there's a a point at which there's no place for experimental archaeology? Everything's been done that needs to be done. Um, so that's my first question. And my second question is, we certainly have um, an extinction acceleration as Neanderthals and and early modern humans. Um, start to, uh, you know, when we get past that 50,000 year point moving toward modern, more modern history, um, Mm -hmm. did fire development play a part, do you think, in that accelerated extinction um, of some species um, because it was being used as a as a means, for example, to um, run animals off a cliff in a hunt situation, or so forth and so on. D- do you think fire played a role in in that that accelerated extinction? Okay, those are two big questions. Um, so the first one, sort of about the, the future of experimental archaeology. Um, I mean, yeah, you, I think this is going to carry on for quite a long time because, I mean, there's always new things being discovered. And so, and people, and, 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 you know, archaeological sites are all over the world. And so you have different materials and different cultures and different, different activities happening all around the world that need to be, you know, potentially replicated if you want to understand what the stone, what, what 
what are the tools being used for from these different archaeological sites. So, um, so I think you know that there's, there's, this is always going to be around to some degree. I think the big question with experimental archaeology is is how will we do it in the future? And you know, right now it's basically just a person with the microscope. They, they look at the, the tool and they, they look for the traces and they're basically making these very, um, these very subjective uh, interpretations of the traces. So it's like, okay, this one looks very similar to this one, so I'm going to um, uh, posit that this is what it was being used for. It's not a positive identification, it's an interpretation. But what some people are working on these days is trying to quantify useware. So finding machine learning algorithms or different analytical um, techniques to actually put some numbers behind what we see under the microscope to either sort of confirm or deny our interpretations and to potentially even automate it. Um, and this is still in its infancy. It, it, it's had mixed success. Um, so for the time being, I think the uh, old school way of, of doing things is going to be around for a while. But I think as technology and methods uh, improve, you're going to see more and more ways to make this a, a harder science, so to speak. So there's definitely a future in usual analysis and experimental archaeology. Um, as for the role of fire in extinction, um, yeah, I, I, I would have to think it plays some role. I um, mean, you know, early on, you know, especially with, um, you know, modern humans coming out of Africa and then, you know, basically outpacing, outbreeding, outcompeting, um, or just being more numerous than the other hominin species that were still alive at that point in time, the Neanderthals in Europe, the Denisovans in Asia, and even the sort of like the Homo floresiensis, like hobbit species that were still, and even very late possible erectus in Southeast Asia. You know, you, it, like they were able to edge them out for one reason or another. And this also includes um, uh, animals as they came through with like... Um, megafauna that were living in Ice Age Americas when people first came over across the Bering Strait um, or even possibly across the Pacific, depends on who you talk to and which genetics you're looking at. But anyway, people coming into North America and in South America, these big animals also died out pretty quickly thereafter. But this is also, again, a chicken or the egg situation. Is Did humans cause it or was it the, the, the shift from the ice age into warmer climates sort of already, you know, got the ball rolling and it was just a matter of timing that, you know, maybe humans helped push them a bit over the edge or just added some contribution to an extinction event that was already in progress. And fire would have certainly played a role because, you know, as I said earlier, how you can use fire to burn landscapes in order to um, either improve hunting or to make uh, an area of land more productive for food that you want to grow there. I mean, these are going to have effects, and, and, and they also could have been used in fire to aid in their hunting. So I think to some degree it may have contributed, but to what extent, it, it's quite hard to say. We would like to thank our guest for this 415th show, Dr. Andrew Sorensen, postdoctoral researcher in human origins and material culture studies at Leiden University in the Netherlands, who talked to us about the ancient history of fire.
The history buff for today's show was Rick Sweet. You can listen to ROI as it's being broadcast on Friday nights on KALA HD2 88.5 FM and 106.1 FM in the Quad City region at 9.30 p.m. You can also listen to the show as it's being broadcast on TuneIn.com. Put K-A-L-A-H-D-2 in the search box and look for ROI. Many of our previously recorded shows can be heard at SoundCloud.com. Just put K-A-L-A Radio in the search and click on the first icon and scroll down to find ROI shows. You can also find ROI on all your favorite streaming platforms like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. ROI is recorded at station K-A-L-A St. Ambrose University.